0: CUA is the voice of urology in Canada. Europedia Canada is your resource for education. Visit CUA.org.
1: Welcome back. My name is Anil Kapoor, and I'm um, pinch hitting for uh, Dr. Alan Soh, who's unable to make it tonight. Um, and I'm pleased to introduce the uh, kidney cancer session tonight. Dr. William Chu uh, will be speaking um, uh, on us, to us some of the radiation abstracts and kidney cancer. Myself and then Christian Kohlsrenberger will talk about some of the systemic therapy trials uh, from GEOASCO. We'll start off with Dr. Chu, who's a radiation oncologist at Sunnybrook, at University of Toronto. Dr. Chu, welcome. Uh, thanks very much uh, to the CUA
0: and uh, the opportunity to provide your highlights uh, from a radiation oncology perspective, with respect to uh, RCC uh, from GEOASCO 2022. Uh, I'd like to present to to your abstracts uh, from the localized renal cell carcinoma space as well as the advanced or metastatic space, and then just a quick abstract uh, discussion uh, about uh, trials in progress. With with, uh, localized RCC, we know that surgery is the gold standard in the treatment of small renal masses. Uh, Partial nephrectomy achieves cancer specific survival as well over 90, 95%, uh, with 10 years greater than 90% of the approaches, as we know, are open. In addition to surgery, uh, the historical and well-recognized ablative uh, strategies, radio-frequency ablation on the next slide, please. Uh, it's the percutaneous uh, image-guided insertion of a radio-frequency uh, ablative probe directly into the tumor target, uh, where uh, rounds of, of uh, uh, microwave or uh, high-frequency ultrasound is delivered to the tumor target leading to a coagulant necrosis and thermal damage to ablate the tumor, typically with a, a margin up to a centimeter around um, tumor or the lesion itself. Here you can see the probe going, uh, being inserted directly into a posterior right side of renal cell carcinoma here on this um, axial CT scan patient in the prone position. Next slide, please. So we know that um, one the most recent update and review that radiofrequency frequency ablation is an excellent ablative option. Uh, more than 8,000 lesions across well over 20 studies, uh, 25 studies show that in general for small renal masses, less than three centimeters size that you're able to achieve local disease control well uh, over 90% with cancer specific survivals well over 90 to approach to 100% uh, over time. Next slide, please. SBRT is the new kid on the block. Recent technical event, uh, advances now permit the precise delivery of ultra-high, extreme doses of radiotherapy, highly sculpted, conformal to the tumor targets such as this left-sided renal lesion here, as you see in red, while allowing steep dose gradients, meaning rapid dose fall-up, to minimize any dose to adjacent structures, particularly here anteriorly. You can see to the tumor, the anterior small bowel, and just lateral so that. Uh, Loop of a large bowel or colon just in the left anterior aspect uh, of the tumor itself. The advantages of SBRT or S or Sabre is that it's a non invasive outpatient treatment. It's not limited by tumor size or tumor location. It's well tolerated and low cost. Next slide, please. So abstract 363 is led by Dr. Kapoor as study chair and Ahmed Swamanath from the Juravinsky Uh, The trial itself is known as RADSTER. uh, They presented their data uh, of a prospective randomized uh, pilot study of SBRT versus RFA with the primary objective to demonstrate not only short but also long-term oncologic efficacy of SBRT or RFA to treat uh, small renal masses, but also primarily to look at the feasibility of randomization and safety and to set the groundwork for a future larger multi-center trial. Next slide, please. The treatment schemata, their sample size was 24 patients. Inclusion criteria included biopsy proven RCC for tumors less than four centimeters in size. And the tumors themselves had to be amenable to SBRT or RFA. And patients had to be willing to have a post treatment biopsy at one year. The experimental arm of the SBRT arm was a single fraction of extremely hyperfractionated radiation treatment to 25 gray in a single fraction, a single treatment setting and the control arm was RFA in a single uh, single session, uh, delivered in a percutaneous approach. As I mentioned earlier, the feasibility endpoints for safety, the recruitment, consent, and completion rates, and based uh, on imaging, as well as a one-year biopsy, uh, was also looking at the clinical endpoints for disease-free survival, quality of life, and also renal toxicity. Next slide, please. So this just highlights the procedure itself to bring the radio frequency ablation as well as the SBRT. It's a single probe RFA uh, procedure to module and deliver 150 watts to reach, to reach a thermal coagulative temperature of 105 degrees Celsius uh, over two cycles, over eight minutes. Uh, same day treatment and post-treatment, that required a four hour observation period before they discharge discharged from. For SBRT, as I mentioned earlier, it's a single fraction of uh, hypofraction radiotherapy in a single session. Patients are immobilized and undergo CT and MR-based fusion uh, and uh, registration and delineation based on a 4D CT. And it's delivered in a single treatment session within two weeks from the simulation session and it's booked within a 30 minute window. Once again, similar to and like RFA, it's done in the same day treatment assessment and subsequent discharge. Next slide. So these are the results. Uh, Between January 2020 and 2021, uh, they were able to uh, achieve 100% recruitment total total of the entire sample size recruited. Unfortunately, one patient was lost to follow-up and one patient due to physical disability was precluded from the treatment. So essentially their sample size of 22 went on to have SBRT and RFA. 14 patients received the SBRT to 25 gray and the RFA eight patients Patient characteristics, as you can see, median age was 67 or relatively young patient cohort. Majority uh, were, were male. And as expected, the, the predominant histology based on biopsy was clear cell renal cell carcinoma. As And as expected, these are small renal masses that were less than three centimeters in size. Mean size overall for the entire group was 2.5 centimeters, 2.2 centimeters in the SBRT group and 2.5 in the RFA. And if you look at the treatment times, very short, right? The entire cohort was only about 15 minutes. If you look at the SPRT arm, overall treatment time is 21 uh, minutes, and RFA was even shorter at 10.5. However, this data, uh, as far as I can tell, does not include the simulation or the post-treatment observation time in the RFA group. Now, all patients at T1A disease, five patients have completed the 12-month follow-up of which two demonstrated viable tumor uh, at the one-year biopsy mark. They're currently being followed on surveillance protocol with the plan of repeating the the biopsy at the two-year post-treatment mark. Uh, Five patients are now at the nine month mark and the remainder of the 12 patients are still under follow-up within protocol with the imaging as defined per protocol on a standard three, six-month period up to one year. Next slide, please. So, What's the take-home message from uh, After 363 and Radster? Uh, the study uh, chairs and leaders of the study must be commended for the ability to actually do and demonstrate feasibility randomization. They've been able to succeed and complete a multidisciplinary uh, complementary study where other centers have tried to do this study and have failed because there was no equipoise. So thus far, we know that SBRT and if they have excellent short-term safety profiles. It's well-tolerated. So far, they've demonstrated low recurrence rates. However, there are two patients, as I mentioned earlier, that do show post-treatment biopsy with residual disease at one year. But I expect at the subsequent two-year biopsy mark that those are likely to show negative results or inactive uh, tumor, much like um, what we see in prostate SBRT, where the two, three-year post-biopsy, post-treatment biopsies really essentially show uh, inactive tumor cells and radiation effect. This really kind of sets the, the foundation and groundwork for a larger multi-center uh, center study to evaluate uh, com- or comparative studies of SBRT versus RFA and some of the interesting questions that could be answered are overall cost effectiveness, but also um, um, the the as a potential uh, evaluation of an ablative option and moving SBRT into that potential recognized ablative treatment space as well. There's some questions that are outstanding and interesting to think about in the future multi-center trial. Is, for example, uh, do we think about uh, stratifying patients based on the renal lymphometry score, based on the location of the tumor? It's interesting based on this very very small uh, uh, data set so far that the majority of more than half of the patients had SBRT versus RFA. Be interesting to know based on the location uh, on tumors. And to be able to think about it, because there's data that does suggest that deeper tumors, more endophytic lesions may in fact represent more aggressive disease. Next slide, please. So in the advanced uh, metastatic RCC space abstract. 336 is uh, presented by the group from the City of Hope in California, where they looked at uh, the impact of SBRT extending time on current systemic therapy in the context of oligoprogressive renal cell carcinoma. This was a small single center retrospective study. And ultimately what they looked at in terms of assessing the time of systemic therapy was determining and calculating the ratio of time subsequent to SBRT to prior SBRT as well as treatment related toxicity uh, for these patients. Next slide, please. So this is a table of the patient characteristics, overall 23 patients and a total of 35, I believe, lesions treated, primarily lung, Lung was the predominant site of oligo progression, as well as bone and lymph nodes. Uh, majority of patients were male. They were fairly young. As expected, the majority of the, the predominant histologic subtype was clear cell renal cell carcinoma. And the types of systemic therapy, uh, which they were taking before and after, were actually a mixed bag of combination of immunotherapy or targeted therapy um, with the standard current regimens of the and nivolumab or an experimental agent. Uh, or exitinib, uh, cabazatinib, uh, uh, pezatinib, so a mixed bag. Interestingly, the majority of patients had developed all the progression, at least 10 of the patients of the 10 of the 23 after their first line of treatment. And the take-home message is really the highlighted in red here is that ratio that they calculated with a 1.3 of uh, a time or date on systemic therapy subsequent to the time prior to the SBRT itself so that more than doubled. The SBRT itself is pretty standard, uh, five fractions, six gray per fraction, with a total dose of 30 gray and five fractions. Next slide. This is the uh, swimmer plot of the individual patient response duration on systemic therapy, prior and subsequent. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, the overall ratio was 1.3 for the entire group. Next slide, please. So overall take home message from this study is that SBRT appears to more than double the current time on the current systemic therapy. However, a caveat is that this is a small retrospective data set, overall toxicity as expected across all literatures of SBRT is that it's well tolerated treatment. And the authors in fact correctly pointed out that yes, further studies for prospective studies are warranted. However, next slide. This in fact has actually been done, led by Gerd Bjornsson and Patrick Chung, where this was the, the first uh, study demonstrating the impact of SBRT in the progressive study, progressive setting with metastatic RCC, but more importantly, it's the first study across any cancer site of progression. Next slide. So this was focused mainly on individuals who developed oligo progression on a TKI for at least more than three months, Less than five tumor sites uh, with other sites that were controlled were treated. The sample size is still relatively small, but represents 37 patients, of which 57 lesions were treated with a median BED of 72, or essentially equivalent to 40 grain five fractions. The median duration of TKI therapy was 18 or 19 months, and the one year local control rate was exceptionally high at 93%. Medium progression of free survival was that is 9.3 months and the one-year survival from study entry was 92%. The key in this study, one of the main take-home messages was that the median time to change the systemic therapy was well over a year, almost 13 months. Univariate analysis demonstrated that patients who had a longer duration of, who were on TKI therapy much longer before all local progression demonstrated a better PS, PFS and a lower cumulative, in, lower cumulative incidence of the need to change systemic therapy. Once again, as expected with SBRT, there were no grade three or greater uh, SBRT related treatment toxicities. Now, this also leads itself and lends itself uh, to the thought that future analyses with larger patient data sets encompassing all the various systemic agents over time are warranted and should demonstrate once again that SBRT, not only in the oligometastatic, but in the oligoprogressive setting, will have a benefit for metastatic patients. Next slide. And as a highlight uh, for trials in progress, Cytoshrink, as we know, is a multi-center randomized phase two trial led by Ali Khan-Layani from Juravinsky, testing uh, the introduction and trying to extrapolate, trying to leverage the potential synergy of SBRT in combination with standard four cycles of double immunotherapy in the setting of intermediate poor risk uh, IMDC metastatic RCC patients. The experimental arm is 30 to 40 grain, five fractions of SBRT delivered just to the primary kidney lesions itself between cycles one and two, followed by cycles two to four of ipinivo. The standard control arm is four cycles of ipinivo followed by maintenance levolumab. And as you can see, the primary endpoint is one year progression free survival rate, and secondary endpoints include safety, um, quality of life and other biologic correlatives.
1: Super. Thank you. Thanks so much, Dr. Chu, that's great. The, um, well, go on, I'll give my presentation, but one of the questions we're gonna prepare you for is what's the radiological definition of recurrence post sbrt for small renal mass? And uh, it does go back to our presentation where two of the biopsies uh, at one year were positive for low-grade disease, and we haven't intervened because the masses are stable. If they progressed, we would probably intervene, but uh, we are going to do, uh, we're trying to, the, the protocol had a one-year biopsy. We're going to try and do a two-year biopsy um, right. and ask the patient. So we'll see what happens with that. But let's move on to my slide because we don't want to keep Dr. Kolzenberger waiting too long. Nobody wants to keep him waiting too long. So let's move mm-hmm. on here. I'm going to give uh, some of the surgical right. aspects of, uh, the first one is a, the, Neo AVEX trial uh, presented by Dr. Alex Beck. This is a podium presentation looking at the um, neoadjuvant avulamab excitinib in patients with localized non metastatic renal cell carcinoma who are at high risk of reoccurrence post nephrectomy. So, we do know that the five year reoccurrence is uh, post high risk RCC is about 50 to 60%. And so this includes T3, T4 disease. And these advanced kidney cancers after surgery, we probably should do a better job of counseling the high risk for reoccurrence now that, that, now that there will be an adjuvant option available to them as well as other adjuvant options in the future as these adjuvant trials read out. The phase two trials of neoadjuvant existing have demonstrated primary tumor control responses of 20 to 40%. And the immune checkpoint inhibitor combination is a standard of care in metastatic clear cell carcinoma with adjuvant pembrolizumab shown to improve disease-free survival and high-risk RCC. So all this put together, Dr. Beck put together a trial looking at neoadjuvant nevo-ipi and uh, um, neoadjuvant um, um, avolumab uh, and uh, excitinib in patients at high risk for reoccurrence based upon this data. So this is the trial that he put together. Um, it was uh, basically uh, 12 weeks of neoadjuvant exitinib and volumab before surgery. And these are patients who were at high risk for disease, being uh, T3, T4, a good performance status there to one and t- no comorbidities precluding surgery um, uh, after uh, their therapy. This is the patient characteristics. They had 40 patients in this trial. Um, and you can see from these characteristics, the majority of them were very high-risk patients. 90% of them had T3A, T3B disease, T4 disease. And so very high-risk population that were put on neoadjuvant avolumab and axitinib before their surgery. And these are the primary tumor responses. They had uh, a partial response in 12 of these patients, 30% had a partial response, and I'm gonna present another couple of trials on neoadjuvant therapy that came out of GeoASCO. And one of the messages is, is that uh, giving neoadjuvant TKI may have a better response and shrinkage than neoadjuvant immunotherapy, but that still remains to be seen. This is the combination of a TKI and IO therapy showing down um, sizing in um, up 20 to 30% of these patients. Of the 12 patients that had a PR of the primary tumor, 83% were disease-free uh, after the surgery. None of the tumors progressed while on therapy. This is the disease for survival and median follow-up of 23 months. Reoccurrence occurred in about uh, 32% of patients and three died of disease, unfortunately, afterwards. And the median DFS and overall survival were not reached Now this 32% uh, may seem high, but if you look at the overall risk of reoccurrence, it's about 60% in T3, T4 at five years. And so this um, is not um, unexpected after these high risk uh, cancers and to receive this drug may have decreased their uh, reoccurrence rate afterwards. Now part of the the concern of giving neoadjuvant immunotherapy is the surgical morbidity of this, giving neoadjuvant uh, TKI also has some morbidity. And so this was a certainly uh, certainly an important uh, part of this trial, looking at a secondary endpoint. And if you look at these uh, uh, tissue plane characteristics, as surgeons, we wanna look at whether they're severely desmoplastic, moderately adhesive or normal. Uh, and about 50% of the surgeons felt that these uh, tissue planes are normal after neoadjuvant IO TKI therapy, but the other 50% felt that there was some desmoplastic reaction and some adhesions from the TKI-IO therapy combination before surgery. Interestingly, about 50% of them were done robotically uh, and 50% done open. All SAEs were attributable to either prolonged hospitalization or readmission, and uh, you can see the list there mainly related to Um, the surgery uh, in the majority of patients, and one was an infusion reaction from the Evolumab. They also did did a biomarker analysis, and it showed that those patients that had low CD8 um, um, uh, levels in these tissues had a higher risk of reoccurrence, and perhaps having a higher rate of CD8 may, may be protective. You can see some of the pictures here that Um, The tumors did respond pretty impressively in some of these patients, shrinking down from a larger size after uh, three months of treatment, 12 weeks of treatment, uh, uh, from a larger tumor here to a bit smaller here, and certainly a a dramatic response on this patient here uh, after three months of of olomab and uh, excitinib. So this is the first new adjuvant trial reporting results from a combination of immune checkpoint inhibitor and VEGFR and TKI for locally advanced RCC. Partial response in the primary tumor occurs in about 30% of patients. The surgical adverse events are as expected. And I think it was nice that they quantified the risk of the desmoplastic reaction and look, looking at these surgeries after three months of IO therapy before surgery. The DFS data is encouraging, supporting further evaluation, although no trials exist looking at randomizing neoadjuvant versus adjuvant ICI. And patients with recurrence had lower CD8 densities uh, in, their, um, in their tissues. So this was a provocative trial and uh, suggested that giving the ICI and the EGFR uh, before surgery for high risk surgery may be downstaging for these. There's been a number of smaller trials over the years talking about neoadjuvant therapy um, and there was actually a number of posters of which I'll give two of them looking at uh, neoadjuvant therapy before non-metastatic RCC. And the first one was neoadjuvant cabozantinib for non-metastatic, where they looked at 17 patients out of Emory uh, Cancer Center. Uh, and these patients received three months, again, 12 weeks of treatment of cabozantinib. And what they found was is that one patient that was not resectable became resectable after uh, treating with Uh, cabozantinib and two patients were converted from a radical to a partial um, giving neoadjuvant cabozantinib and uh, the usual cabozantinib side effects that we see with TKIs and no immediate complications from the cabozantinib itself. And if you look at the responses, you can see that all uh, patients actually responded uh, to downsizing their tumor. So this is an illustration that giving neoadjuvant TKI may be better than giving neoadjuvant IO therapy with downsizing these tumors to make them resectable to a partial nephrectomy um, or um, even resectable at all as in one patient in here. The third poster was looking at neoadjuvant immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy. And this was also a small study out of UC San Diego by Dr. McKay, where they gave neoadjuvant IO therapy before surgery And they looked at the so-called bifecta, which is a a negative surgical margin and 30-day complication rate. And what they found that they achieved this bifecta in uh, 75% of patients. uh, And they found that um, you were able to downsize these tumors, but not as dramatic as we found with the TKI preoperatively as opposed to the IO. So, So from a surgical point of view, it appears that based upon this accumulation of data, Uh, that giving an IO may not be as beneficial for downstaging before surgery. Now going on to the adjuvant, I want to present a couple of abstracts on adjuvant therapy. Part of it's from, one of it's from the CCASE database, where we looked at uh, patients who were in uh, adjuvant trials in Canada, compared to patients that were not in trials and just were on standard of care. And what we found in those patients on the adjuvant trial cohort, they had a higher overall survival than those patients that were not on trial. Now, we weren't able to tease out those patients on adjuvant trials that received placebo versus the study drug, but in general, those patients that were in the adjuvant trials did better than those patients that did not go into a trial. We do have a selection bias in these, in these obviously, uh, but looking at the cumulative data and the Canadian experience, those patients that had high-risk high clear cell carcinoma that participated in adjuvant trials, were younger and had fewer comorbidities and did better if they went to a trial than if they didn't, uh, suggesting that adjuvant therapy may be beneficial uh, in the CECIS database. Dr. Kolzenberger is gonna talk about the long-term outcomes of adjuvant pembrolizumab, but there was a Markov model put out by Mayo Clinic in this last, uh, um, after I'm gonna present looking at cost effectiveness. I think this is important for a Canadian population uh, because we need to choose out whether we should give this um, um, pricey drug to patients uh, who are at high risk for recurrence and uh, would it be cost effective longer term. And what this Markov model suggested is that adjuvimpermobilizumab was not cost effective for all trial patients at five years, but did emerge to be cost effective at 15 years. At five years, adjuvant pembrolizumab was a cost effective for the highest risk patients. And these are defined by those patients who had complete metastatectomy or M1 resected patients and those with lymph node involvement that were resected as well. These highest risk patients benefited uh, from adjuvant pembrolizumab and were cost effective uh, based upon this Markov model. So in summary, Slide. Uh, in summary, there's multiple aspects of neoadjuvant therapy before non-metastatic kidney cancer surgery, and they need more data to, for surgical risk with preoperative IO TKI. It appears that um, the, uh, giving uh, IO therapy and then doing surgery may have more desmoplastic reaction in the tissues compared to TKI preoperatively, but this still remains to be seen and we're gonna do more and more of these nephrectomies after giving IO therapy in the first line setting, and they subsequently may come to their subtle nephrectomy after um, therapy. So these are good lessons from these abstracts on neoadjuvant therapy. And adjuvant therapy has a um, a strong DFS signal, may be cost effective uh, for the highest risk patients, and we still have to select out which patients will benefit the most from adjuvant pembrolizumab. All right, with that, I'll pass it on to uh, Dr. Colsenberger um, from the uh, BC Cancer Agency. Uh, will, uh, Dr. Kolzenberger, I look forward to your presentation.
2: Thank you, Anil. Yeah, so I was um, I was looking at the more systemic therapy um, um, abstracts, and I have to say, these are my disclosures, I have to say that uh, at this case, GeoASCO, it was kind of a modest amount of of interesting data. So I decided on three abstracts, the update on the adjuvant pembrolizumab study, which uh, Anil has just mentioned. Uh, There was an analysis with an additional six months of median follow-up, so a total of 30 months follow-up. Then look at the uh, five year minimum follow-up data for nivolumab plus ipilimumab in patients with sarcomatoid RCC. And then last but not least, um, I decided to talk about randomized phase two trials, which was the so-called third study, which actually looked at those scheduled individualization for sunitinib. And uh, I will tell you when we get to it why I chose that. So when we look at the adjuvant situation, um, um, uh, this is the situation as we have it at the moment from the TKI era. And we have uh, these six studies um, all of which were negative. The only one which had a, a somewhat positive DFS was the Sonithinib study. And the only study which is uh, still outstanding in terms of results is the Everest trial of Everolimus versus placebo, although I would be very surprised if that study showed a benefit given the activity of uh, Everolimus in the in the metastatic setting. So uh, Keynote 564 uh, five, was a um, randomized trial of uh Uh, localized RCC patients were randomized to uh, pembrolizumab plus placebo. The study also allowed um, M1 NED patients who were resected, completely resected within a year as a specific subgroup in that trial. Uh, The primary endpoint here was DFS by investigator. Overall survival was a secondary endpoint. And as I mentioned, uh, this is a median uh, 30-month follow-up. Just to um, to refresh the memory with regards to the patient par- patient characteristics, the study was initially presented at ESMO last year. This The majority of patients had M0 intermediate high, that was by far the, the largest group of patients, a smaller group of patients were deemed to be high risk. And then a small group, about 6% of patients had M1 NED. about 10% of patients had sarcomatoid features, and uh, about 70% of patients were deemed to be PDL1 uh, positive or high. Um, about 60% of patients had FOMA grade three and four tumors, and about 6% were N1. So that's the patient population which went into that trial, and this is the primary endpoint uh, in the ITT population, DFS. Uh, and as you can see here, um, with the longer follow up, the DFS benefit was maintained. With a hazard ratio of 0.63, so the, um, uh, when we compare that to the DFS benefit which was reported at the 24-month follow-up, um, we see that the hazard ratio actually has improved, which is which is promising. Um, and uh, that overlap, which was quite quite uh, hotly discussed at ESMO 2021. What that would mean um, has disappeared as well. Uh, so that was probably just because of the low patient numbers here at the end of the tail. But the, peer, the, the hazard ratio now slightly improved compared to the analysis at 24 months. When we look at the different groups, it seems that uh, most groups benefit. The intermediate high group, uh, as you can see, is statistically positive, as is the high-risk group, even better benefit. And uh, one of the largest benefit we see is in this M1 NAD group. So the metastatic patients who were completely resected, where the hazard ratio was 0.28. Keep in mind that is a very small subgroup, and as you can see here, so far uh, a very, um, a very um, uh, limited number of events um, in those in those groups. So when we look at the the overall survival, um, uh, the overall survival. Uh, not significant. Even so, the p-value looks significant, but it is not. Uh, the overall survival is certainly way too immature. You see here that there is only a small number of events yet, and we need uh, a much longer follow-up to really see whether the study will produce an overall survival signal or not. Um, uh, and that and that remains to be that remains to be seen. So when we look at the um, toxicity profile, and I think that is something which we absolutely need to uh, take into account, even if we treat patients only with a PD-1 inhibitor. But you can see here that the number of patients with grade 3, 4 events and uh, AEs leading to treatment discontinuation was actually close to 20%, which is one in five patients had significant toxicity and one in five patients stop treatment because of uh, stop treatment because of a a um, a, uh, uh, a significant uh, adverse event, and I think that is something which we shouldn't uh, uh, dismiss, because these are usually side effects which can potentially uh, uh, have lifelong consequences, such as genuine insufficiency, hypothyroidism, diabetes, or others and that is associated with significant morbidity and financial cost so i think it is important when we talk about adjuvant treatment particularly with uh, immunotherapy agents that we really consider the overall burden of treatment quality of life acute and long term morbidity financial cost and of course clinical outcome and that's i think is is important when we when we when we discuss the current the current landscape where we don't really have a a a clear overall survival uh, signal. So the artyomid pembrolizumab really continues to demonstrate the DFS benefit. It seems to actually improve in terms of the hazard ratio. Um, There were no new safety signals, but there remain questions with regards to the toxicity and the morbidity burden for these patients. Um, The benefits in DFS seems to exist across the different subgroups. Um, and uh, uh, in terms of overall survival, we certainly need a lot, a lot more follow-up to really, to really assess that. I think there's a, a large number of open questions really here um, with uh, the, the use of immunotherapy in the adjuvant setting. One of them is certainly, how long do we have to treat these patients? Um, will there ever be an overall survival benefit given the activity of uh, the uh, of systemic therapy in the metastatic setting? And for me, a very important part is what are we going to do for recurrences? Is our current first line uh, or our are uh, our current first line tools such as immunotherapy, immunotherapy combinations, or immunotherapy TKI combinations? Are they going to be similarly effective in PD-1 pre-treated patients in the adjuvant setting as they are for treatment-naive patients? I think that's an important question. Um, what about biomarkers? Can we better define the group of patients who actually need and the group of patients who benefits from adjuvant immunotherapy? And then obviously the cost of overtreatment, because we need to keep in mind that we will overtreat a very significant number of patients and potentially expose them to lifelong morbidity I think those are kind of a lot of questions which we need to solve. There's a number of other achievement studies um, coming. One of them is the NIVO hippie study, which has just finished accrual. And uh, we will certainly see first data in the next year or two. Um, And that will be interesting to see as well, whether that looks similar or whether there is a different type of benefit and in particular, a different type of toxicity. The second study I wanted to follow up on was the, ni- uh, the 214 study, and that was the subset of patients with sarcomatoid RCC. I don't really need to explain the, the, um, the study design. We've seen that over and over and over again, Nibuipi versus Sunitinib, in patients with intermediate or poor risk uh, metastatic RCC. And in this study, the co-primary endpoints were actually response rate PFS and OS. And when we look at the overall response rate, and this is now with a minimum of five year follow-up, so really a very mature study, you can see that that uh, patients uh, with sarcomatoid RSC and those were patients who had any type of sarcoma, or any, any portion of percentage of sarcomatoid, had about a 23% complete response rate and about a 60% overall response rate. Um, uh, and that is certainly something which we've not seen. You see here the, the numbers for TKIs, and those are the numbers we are used to for patients with sarcomatoid RCC, uh, complete response rate uh, in the low one-digit range and uh, overall response rate about 20, 25%. So this is quite an impressive overall response rate in that, um, and that is reflected in the PFS. You see here that at five years, 46% of patients are progression-free. That is certainly an unprecedented number. And you see that as of 24 months, similar to the uh, outcomes in the PFS in the overall study, the PFS curve seems to plateau. And there is very little happening here. And that seems to be uh, particularly here in the PDL one positive patients, but the PDL one negative patients seem to benefit as well. Even so, not as much as the pdl one positive patients. And when we look at the overall survival, the median overall survival has been reached now at a minimum follow-up of five years with uh, 40, uh, 48.6 months, um, again, uh, very, very long uh, overall survival for this group of patients, which we have in the past always considered prognostically very poor. And you see that the overall survival in the PDL one positive group has not been reached and in the pdl one negative group, it is 40 months, still very impressive. So in conclusion, I think I think uh, the efficacy results demonstrated uh, in previous analysis are maintained with this long follow-up of minimum five years. There are no new safety signals. There's very little added toxicity in the long term. And I think with these data, if, unless we see any other data in the future, nivolumab, ipilimumab should be the preferred regimen in metastatic. Uh, sarcomatoid RCC. Uh, And I think these data really, these excellent outcomes set a new standard and a new bar for comparisons to other regimens um, in the future in patients with sarcomatoid RCC. And last but not least, just a few slides to the SURF study, which was a study which included untreated metastatic RCC patients with clear cell carcinoma. And those patients started um, on 50 milligrams for four weeks on, two weeks off. And when they required a dose adjustment, they were either randomized to sunitinib 37.5 for four weeks on, two weeks off, uh, or to 50 milligrams for two weeks on, one week off. So still not the same dose schedule individualization that we propose in in Canada, but it is uh, uh, the only randomized trial out there which really looked at that in that fashion. Uh, and when we look at the results here, um, we see that the, in terms of progression-free survival, um, the, um, the, the 50 milligrams for two weeks on one week off seems to be better than, um, than uh, the 37.5 continuously and the same applies for the um, overall survival. Um, Now you can say that we always suspected that, and this is a randomized phase two, which basically shows again that we are probably right with the dose scheduled individualization, which we have been following for a long time in Canada. But I think it is is important to remember that we are using TKIs. We are still using TKIs in the first-line setting, even so we use them uh, in combination with immunotherapy. And I think it is important to remember that even within those Regimens. It is important to maintain this dose schedule individualizations for TKI because otherwise we will not um, we will not ex- uh, 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 maximize the potential of the TKI in that combination. And I think that is what, what when I when I saw that study, I thought this is it's important to remember uh, and not to forget that we need to continue to optimize the use of the TKI even in these. Uh, combination
1: regimens. Thank you. Very nice, Christian. Well done. Thank you so much. Um, so there's a, a question from Dr. Robert Hamilton. Uh, I think it's mainly we will ask the first part to Dr. Chu and the second part to Dr. Kohlsenberger. So the first one uh, from Rob is, can we extrapolate the mounting oligoprogressive data to surgical metastectomy where we have far uh, less data looking at SBRT for oligo progression,
0: Dr. Chu? So I can't see it on the chat, but...
1: Um, so I'll, basically- read I'll read it again. So sure. S- SBRT for oligoprogression. Mm-hmm. Can we extrapolate the mounting all the progressive data to surgical mesotectomy where we have far less data? So but I think what he's asking is, when you have, um, uh, for metastatectomy, can you do it with SBRT as opposed to surgery? The, hmm,
0: that's a, uh, let's say long and short of it is, is a metastectomy or ablation of the tumor can come in different ways, right? There's no doubt that in certain or specific clinical situations where if you can get it out by surgery, for sure, that's probably going to be ideal. We know that in metastatic colorectal cancer, it's standard is liver resection, uh, or, you know, other um, surgical um, uh, approaches kind of makes a lot of sense. The issue is that sometimes the tumors may not be accessible or sometimes the patients may not performance status or patient factors, tumor factors may limit the ability to go in and, and uh, or even uh, surgical uh, or even say, for example, surgical selection, right? And then you think about, you know, the patient has limited disease. All other sites in metastatic disease are stable except for one site. And if you have one modality, potentially uh, uh, a non-invasive modality to do it like SBRT, uh, I think that's uh, reasonable to consider. But there's no doubt, at least in our experience, in our unit, that if you can try to get it out by surgery, then certainly a conversation with our surgical oncologist is very important at decision-making, right? You know, for example, for like you know, uh, adrenal mets, You know, there's no doubt adrenalectomy is going to be great if you can take it out. But if it's you know, tacked down on the same side as a previous nephrectomy and there's lots of bile tacked on and the surgeon goes, you know what, that's going to be pretty tough to go in and get it out. If there's another modality to try to ablate or maximize local disease control um, to keep them on that line of systemic therapy uh, or keep them off of systemic therapy, it um, kind of makes sense, right? But the reality is that this is all being tested, right? Uh, you know, we have Comet Sabre, we have other types of studies looking uh, in well-designed prospective trials to answer those questions of the role of SBRT in not only oligometastatic, but also oligoprogressive setting. Right?
1: Thank you. So question, uh, Dr. Hamilton, the second part is, can we extrapolate to treating oligomets with SBRT prior to any systemic therapy with the goal of delaying systemic therapy? I think Dr. Chu kind of answered that a little bit, but what are your thoughts yes.
2: Um, So from a medical oncology point of view, yes, I'm I'm a a big fan of utilizing these localized treatment options if I see the opportunity to delay systemic therapy. Um, uh, I I think in particular in the metastatic setting, uh, it is beneficial to the patient, as we know uh, from the surveillance studies that delaying systemic therapy Uh, is associated with improved quality of life, um, less toxicity, obviously. So I think it is a good tool to do that. What we have to learn is how do we optimally integrate these localized treatment options into our systemic treatment algorithms? And that's where we need to do the work and that's where we need to get experience. Um, But I've been been using that the same way as I've, I've been using surgical approaches. If I see an opportunity to delay um, uh, systemic therapy or put a patient into a, an NED situation uh, and the ability to give him a treatment break. I think those things are very important and in the best interest of the patient.
1: I guess what I look, I'm trying to read Rob's, Rob's mind, if you had a patient who had uh, metastatic disease before starting systemic therapy and there was an oligo progression of one of the lesions would you radiate that, do SPRT to that lesion before starting on systemic therapy or would you do it concurrently? What are your thoughts on that kind of a patient?
2: Not exactly sure, I understand the question. If he has oligometastatic disease and I do SPRT on that, I would wait with my systemic therapy. If he has oligoprogressive disease and I would treat that with SPRT, I would not change what I'm doing in the background, whether that is continuing with my systemic therapy or continuing on a treatment break. um, I personally don't think particularly for SPRT that if a patient is on systemic therapy that you have to do a treatment breaker, you have to do it before that. Um, uh, SPRT is usually a few fractions, if at all, and uh, you just, you just uh, do it in between. And if the patient is really on a TKI, you can give them a few days break, which usually does not have any adverse adverse, uh, uh, outcomes. So I think it's, it's, it's a very easy to accommodate treatment options in combination with systemic therapy.
0: So, yeah, I agree, Christian, uh, and at least in our unit, uh, with Gehrig, you know, like whether three or five fractions or even less, depending on the site of metastatic or oligoprogressive disease, it's easy to integrate the SPRT for, you know, to, with the goal of ablation, right? So they don't actually yeah. have to, uh,
2: And and if I I can just add a word of my own experience, um, I've had a number of patients now who had SBRT to brain meds or bone meds, and it is a massive difference to conventional radiation. Um, For the first time, you have the impression that you can actually put patients, you can put that tumor location to rest. Um, I had a patient who survived with SBRT brain meds for another five years. Uh, we've never seen that before. I have a patient who has been eight years in complete remission with sunitinib and in the, in the combination of SBRT to his spine met. Um, and he's been off sunitinib for eight years. So we've never seen these things with conventional radiation. So I think it is a massive step forward in the, in the treatment of RCC and radiation.
1: Super, thanks. We're at 9.30 now, so I think we'll have to call it a, a day um thanks everybody thanks everyone for your uh, contribution to tonight's program dr colzenberger dr chu those are great lectures and um i want to thank everybody for attending and sticking out till the end and have a great uh, evening uh, there's a link for the evaluation sent to your email and then you'll get your certificate of participation uh, afterwards so have a great night thanks so much thank
0: you very much